Class two is given by our brother Steve Davis of Boston, Massachusetts. His overall theme for the week has been lessons from an imperfect ecclesia. And his class, this is class four, is entitled For Conscience Sake. Brother Steve. Thank you very much, Peter. Good morning, everybody. Lessons from an imperfect ecclesia. And boy, didn't we see that yesterday. In our class yesterday, we spent time going through Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And we discovered that the brothers and sisters in Corinth, we discovered that the Christadelphian ecclesia in Corinth had very many real and serious problems. There were problems that related to doctrine. There were some, we read, who denied the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. There were some who were uncertain about idols and believed that possibly idols were real. There were moral problems too. Brethren were taking brethren to court to be judged by pagan judges over matters of dispute and dissension. There were brethren who were slipping back into immorality. And all of these things needed to be addressed by the Apostle. We spoke yesterday about how when Paul and Brother Sosthenes wrote this letter from Ephesus. They were responding to two things. They were responding to a report that came to them from those in Chloe's household. And they were also asked to answer specific questions that the brothers and sisters in Corinth had posed in a letter they sent to the Apostle Paul. And with some amusement in my mind, I think of them gathered around when this letter first came back to see what the Apostle said and to determine how it was that he would resolve and and solve all of their problems. And how it is that when they first began to read the letter, they discovered that it wasn't until chapter 7 that he actually addressed any of their specific questions. And instead, what we learned is that Paul's priority was that the ecclesia remain united. We spent time yesterday speaking about the importance of continuing in fellowship so that the brothers and sisters could learn to agree with one another. We looked at two verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. And we tried to draw out two points. The first from verse 9 is that the individuals to whom Paul wrote were all baptized believers. They had been immersed 
having been taught and having understood the gospel that was taught by the Lord Jesus Christ and His apostles. And consequently, through their baptism into Christ, they enjoyed fellowship with their Heavenly Father. And we went to 1 John chapter 1, and we looked at those well-familiar verses about fellowship and how they enjoyed fellowship with their Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And through baptism into that understanding, they became part of God's amazing family. And consequently, we too, through our baptism, join that family and become brothers and sisters together with Christ. And so Paul addressed his letter to those who were called into fellowship. The second thing that we saw that we tried to draw out is what we found in verse 10. That the ecclesia there was encouraged to become of one mind and one judgment. And for years I used to think that there could be no fellowship unless there was that unity of mind. But it seems clear to me that what Paul is teaching through the context of this letter in 1 Corinthians is that the ecclesia, despite their moral problems and despite their doctrinal problems, needed to remain together so that they could exhort one another to that unity of mind and judgment. And it was only by remaining together that they could have the opportunity to teach and to correct, and at times to rebuke. And it's through that process of sharing that the brothers and sisters could eventually become of one mind and one thought. And so we spoke about examples throughout the Scripture where we see that taking place. Marriage. From the very beginning, we're told that a man and a woman would leave their parents' home. And they would be united together and become one flesh. And we spoke about how important it is for a husband and wife to be one in mind and in thought. And how there are times when husbands and wives, even in the best of marriages, have disagreements. And how the Scripture teaches that no one should put asunder that the husband and wife, despite their differences, should continue together so that they can work together to raise their family, to learn to know and to love the Gospel message. So we saw that example in marriage. We talked about how we, having been baptized into Christ, become members of that one body. And we went to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And we discovered that it's through our baptism that we become part of that one body. And how as members of that body, we have a responsibility for two things. We have a responsibility to remain a part of the ecclesia even when, even when we sometimes feel left out. And conversely, we have a responsibility not to push members of the body aside in a way 
when they don't see the same way as the eye. And so we looked at these things as it relates to the body of Christ and how the body of Christ needs to be one. And I'd like to draw your attention to one additional example that I find very helpful. And it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I mention it because for years I misunderstood what this verse was actually teaching. It's the verse that you're probably familiar with when it says that we are the temple of the living God. So it's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Paul writes and says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. Now, brothers and sisters, as a young man, I would often look at that verse, and I would apply that verse to the reasons why it would be wrong for me to drink to excess, or to do things to my body that would be harmful to my body. But as I read Paul's letter to the Corinthians here in 1 Corinthians 3, it's become clear to me that what Paul is speaking about here is not the personal me. When he says, you are the body of Christ, or you are the temple of the living God, he's not speaking about me individually. He's using the word you in the collective sense. That you... Brothers and sisters, we are all the temple of the living God. And he demonstrates a very clear warning to those that would destroy and divide the temple. We really see the context of this in chapter 3, where Paul is addressing the divisions within the meeting. So I'd like to flip back now to the first chapter. Because the report that came to Paul had to do with the divisions in the meeting. Chloe's household came to Paul, and in chapter 1, verse 11, we read this. Paul says, My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas, and still another, I follow Christ. Chloe's household reported that there was division in the meeting. And the brothers and sisters there were taking a certain amount of pride in associating with some in the ecclesia. So for example, when some said, I follow Paul, they were taking pride, they wanted to associate with Paul because, after all, it was he that had taught the gospel message in the city of Corinth. It was he that had established the ecclesia there. And so there were some in the meeting that felt an allegiance to Paul and felt that they needed to follow Paul. But within within that ecclesia, there were also some who said that they followed Apollos. And for them... Their attraction wasn't necessarily to the one that created, that helped create the meeting there. Their attraction was to the fact that Apollos was a learned man 
that he was a great orator and that they wanted to associate with him because they had a connection with him. They felt that he was the type of one that they wanted to associate with. So turn with me to Acts chapter 18. A few days ago, we looked at the first half of Acts 18 where Paul was preaching the Gospel in Corinth. And it's in the second half of the letter that we read about his time in Ephesus. And it was while he was in Ephesus that Apollos comes upon the scene. So Acts chapter 18, verse 24. At this point, Paul is preaching in Ephesus. He says, after spending some... uh, 24. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervor. And he taught about Jesus accurately. And so we can understand, can't we, how there would be some in the Corinthian Ecclesia that would look to Apollos and say, here's a learned man. Here's a man that speaks with great fervor. I feel a connection to him. I want to be associated with him rather than Paul. And yet some would say, oh, for me, it's Peter after all. Cephas was one of the original apostles. He was with Jesus. Jesus spoke to him directly. I'm going to associate with Cephas. And so it's easy, I think, for us with that background to understand why it is that these divisions and these schisms began to form. And Paul sees these things and he says, no, brethren, you have to be one. They took this pride in association. And and in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we really get a sense for that pride. Verse 1. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly, for since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? Now turn over to chapter 4, verse 6. Paul says, I'm applying these things to myself. Don't follow me. We follow Christ. Verse 6, Now, brothers, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. There's a wonderful exhortation there for us, brothers and sisters. I have to tell you, there are times when I take pride in my association with the Boston Ecclesia. I love my Ecclesia. I think we do things the right way. And I, and, and I do take a certain amount of pride in that. And what Paul is saying is, we ought not take pride in our associations with an Ecclesia or with an individual, but we need brothers and sisters, to work together as fellow workers 
in Christ Jesus. And Paul speaks of that quite clearly. We need to work together as fellow workers. If we flip back to chapter 1, verse 18, we're going to see Paul begin to offer three examples that contrast the good news of the gospel with certainly certain worldly traits. And this again relates to the pride that the brothers and sisters had in their associations with others. In chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, Paul contrasts the good news of Christ crucified with worldly wisdom. He says in verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. If you go down to the 23rd verse, he says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. And so, when we contrast the good news of the gospel to worldly wisdom, we can see that the world looks at Christ crucified. The Jews would see that as a defeat because they were looking for a Messiah that would come to rule in righteousness. And the Greeks would look at that and think, how is it that they can put their trust in a man who died? It's foolishness. And so, Paul contrasts these things. He says, take not pride in the wisdom of men. Don't don't feel prideful or boastful about your association with those who are wise. In chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, Paul begins to show this contrast between boasting about social standing or perhaps political influence. And he says that some of you, in verse 26... Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. He's drawing the contrast here to show that noble birth and influence are of little regard in comparison to the gospel truth. So take not pride in those things. And in chapter uh, 2... In the first five verses, he speaks about the eloquent speech. And he talks about how the growth of the gospel message in Corinth had nothing to do with the way he spoke, but with God's blessing on that area. He says, I came to you in meekness. I came to you in fear, in trembling. And yet, despite those things, Despite the fact that Paul did not have the eloquent speech like an Apollos, God watered. And the gospel message was heard and accepted. And the ecclesia grew one by one by one as individuals through God's grace and mercy were baptized into the body of Christ. And because of those things, Paul says in chapter 4, verse 7, why it's so important not to be boastful about our wisdom or about our social standing 
or about the eloquent speech of, our, of, of the brethren in our meetings. He says in verse 7 of chapter 4, For who makes you different from anyone else? What did you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? And so if we have anything to boast of, brothers and sisters, it's not our association with our home ecclesias, it's not our association with certain individual brothers of influence or or brethren of great eloquence. We boast in Christ and Him crucified. And consequently, we are encouraged to be workers together, fellow workers. There's an interesting there, there's an interesting application of this when we come to Paul's letter to the Colossians. Because we'll discover that one of the greatest threats to the gospel message was the message of the Judaizers these individuals who followed the Apostle as he preached the Gospel, to say Christ's sacrifice wasn't enough. In addition to Christ having been sacrificed, you still need to follow the works of the law. And Paul realized that if this message got out and got into the ecclesias, it would have a very damaging effect on the Gospel message. Because Christ's crucifixion and sacrifice is all that we need. There's nothing that we can do to achieve our salvation. And consequently, Paul consistently, consistently spoke out against those false teachers who brought the Judaizers' message to the Ecclesias. But interestingly, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 11, there's a fascinating glimpse of the fact that Paul drew a distinction between brethren that taught falsely and those that may have been misled by their teaching. And in verse 11 of Colossians 4, Paul is concluding his letter there, and he's speaking of those brethren who are with him, and he says of this man justice and Jesus not the Christ, of course, and Jesus, which is called justice, who are of the circumcision. These only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God. And so clearly there was a distinction in Paul's mind between those who taught the true gospel and those who were teaching falsely this Judaistic Judaizer thinking where they were preaching that it was still necessary to complete and do works of the law. And yet, we see here that Paul was a fellow worker with this man Justice. Obviously, one who did not teach the false doctrine, but perhaps one that had been carried away by it. Again, it illustrates the point that we need to remain together so that through our constant exhortation, one with another, we can become of one mind, and we can become one judgment. These things happen only through our sharing. And I think the Apostle Paul here gives us an example of how he tried to do that through his teaching to the Corinthians 
and through his actions with this brother, Justice. So we've worked from 1 Corinthians 1 through 1 Corinthians 4. I'd like to look now at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which is the chapter where we discover that there was one brother in Christ who was acting in an immoral way, who was living in an incestuous relationship, sleeping with his father's wife. Something that not even the pagans would do, Paul says. And so Paul provides this young ecclesia in Corinth with specific guidance about how to deal with this situation. And we find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He begins in verse 1 by saying, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not even occur among pagans. A man has his father's wife and you're proud? Shouldn't you rather be filled with grief? And so we spoke briefly about this yesterday, how some in the ecclesia there were confusing God's grace. We see it in the Roman Ecclesia too, where Paul says, what shall I say then? Shall I continue in sin that grace may abound? Should we continue to sin so that God can demonstrate His grace by forgiving worse and worse sins? God forbid. And it's the same sort of thing that's going on here. And so Paul's counsel to the brothers and sisters there was very specific. He says in verse 11, But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral, or greedy, or an idolater, or a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. The point that I believe Paul is making is that this particular individual was teaching false doctrine through his actions. Did you catch what what Paul said? He said, do not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother and does these things. He's speaking specifically about the brother or sister in Christ who is unrepentant in his immoral actions. Who is saying it is okay to be a brother in Christ and to live in this immoral way. And it's through those actions that he is actually teaching wrong moral doctrine. And consequently, Paul advises the brothers and sisters there to collectively judge this man. To indicate to this brother that his actions, in their opinion, are so severe that he is in danger. That he is in danger of being thrown out of the kingdom. That he, based on his actions and based on his teachings, in their opinion, would not be granted acceptance into the kingdom. And consequently, they turn him over to Satan. The purpose behind this is to indicate to this man that his actions are so severe that he needs to recognize the wrong that he is is doing and that he needs to repent. 
And this action only works, brothers and sisters, when our ecclesias are a place where we want to be. We need to develop an atmosphere within the walls of our meeting where people can come to be strengthened and exhorted and encouraged so that if I have a doubt about my faith, I can come to you in confidence and share that with you and expect that you, in your love, will help me through it. And that if I'm struggling with a moral issue, the ecclesia should be a place where I can go to a trusted brother or sister and share those things, knowing that I'll be loved and knowing that I will be helped to walk in a way that's worthy of our calling. We need to develop an atmosphere and an environment within the walls of our meetings so that sinners can come there to be healed and strengthened. And the effect of this man being cast out of the ecclesia was such that he realized that without the strength and the support of his brothers and sisters, he was no place. And the good news is that when we come to 2 Corinthians, we discover that this man who had been cast out hadn't repented So turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And in verse 6, we see the rest of the story. Paul writes to the same brothers and sisters years later in 2 Corinthians, and he says, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he'll not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. And so the brother who had been cast out has repented of his ways. And the ecclesia is being exhorted by Paul to welcome him back, to bring him back, because he is repentant. And we see that example and we take heart in that. Now, brothers and sisters, I make a a note here on our slide that all of the withdrawal passages in Scripture are addressed not to brothers and sisters who have failures of understanding or who have lapses in moral judgment, but are instead applied to those false teachers those who lead division, those who blaspheme, the immoral brother who claims to be a brother in Christ and is unrepentant in his actions. All, each and every one of the withdrawal passages in Scripture are applied to individuals such as that. And I'd encourage you to read these verses in their context to see that that's the case. And so the beauty of chapter 5 in 1 Corinthians is that this immoral brother was restored. And it demonstrates once again Paul's counsel that we be of one mind and one judgment.
Chapter 7 is a chapter that describes marriage. And it's here in this chapter that the Apostle finally begins to answer the questions that the Ecclesia posed. He says in verse 1, Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. But since there's so much immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but to her husband. And in the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. And we begin to see here Paul describing the importance of working together. The importance of being not concerned only about your own welfare, but about the welfare of all those within the meeting whom you love. We are to demonstrate the love of Christ, to love the least of these, my brethren. And so, chapter 7 is a chapter that has been discussed many times before. I'd like for us to to skip over that and get to chapter 8 in in as much as we uh, we have limited time. Chapter 8, of course, is the chapter that was read for us this morning, and it describes the weaker brother. And it describes how it is that we need to respect the conscience of the weaker brother. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul writes, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. You'll recall the the, uh, circumstances or the context of this verse. There were some within the ecclesia who were, believe it or not, uncertain about whether idols were real. Paul begins by saying, verse 4, So then about eating food sacrificed to idols... We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there's no God but one. For even if there were so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there's but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there's but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things come and through whom we live. But then Paul says in verse 7, but not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it's defiled. But food does not bring us near to God We're no worse if we do not eat it, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Let's skip down to the 13th verse. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall so that I will not cause him 
to fall into sin. The King James Version there uses the word offend so that I will not cause him to offend. And I think it's really important for us to understand that when the word offend is used, it is used as it relates to causing a brother or sister to fall into sin and not used to indicate that a brother or sister is upset or is angry or feels disagreeable. And this is a very important distinction. When Paul counsels us not to eat meat if it causes a weaker brother to offend, he's speaking specifically about causing someone to be led into sin. Think of the context of the brothers and sisters in Corinth. There's one verse in 1 Corinthians 6, I believe it is, that speaks of Paul listing this long laundry list of evils and sins. And Paul says, and that's what some of you were. Do you remember that? That's what some of you were. And so there were brothers and sisters in Corinth who had come from that background. Now imagine yourself, that young brother, and you're brought to a temple. And it's there in the temple where they had these restaurants. The restaurants is where the food would be served. But this brother, when he goes, sees the prostitute that works in the temple. And because of the close proximity of that prostitute, it might be possible that this young man for whom Christ died could be drawn by her back into the world of immorality. That this brother, by associating in the temple, could fall into sin that way. That's what Paul means when he speaks about not causing your brother to offend. That he not be led into sin. There's a wonderful example of this in the Gospel record. You'll recall the time when Jesus began to prepare his disciples for his pending death. And he began to explain to them that he needed to go to Jerusalem where he would be crucified. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 16. Verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day, be raised to life. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. And of course, we're so familiar with what comes next. We're so familiar with Jesus' words when he says, 
Get thee behind me, Satan. But do we continue to read what Jesus says there? He says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You see, Peter was a stumbling block to our Lord in the sense that he was encouraging Jesus into sin. He was encouraging Jesus to do His will rather than the will of His heavenly Father. And we know how difficult it was for Jesus that in tears He prayed, not my will, but Thine be done. And so when Peter came to Him and said, not you, Lord, you won't be crucified, we won't let this happen to you, it wasn't that Jesus was merely upset about what Peter was saying. It wasn't that his, his feelings were hurt that Peter didn't get it. Jesus was offended because he was being led into sin by Peter. And that's the offense that Paul speaks about when he speaks about how it is that we should not offend our weaker brethren. In Paul's letter to 1 Corinthians, he speaks about our conscience. He speaks about the conscience of the weaker brother. And as some of you may know, I have been actively involved with the Religious Conscientious Objection Committee in the Christadelphian community for many years. And there was a wise brother that came to me one day and explain to me that we are not conscientious objectors based on humanistic thinking, based on pacifistic teaching. We are conscientious objectors based on the revealed will of God. So, for example, in the Old Testament time, it would be wrong for us not to pick up the sword and fight because the revealed will of God was that we go into the land of Canaanites and fight. And today, however, we know that the revealed will of God is that we are to put away our sword, that we are to love our enemies, that we are to love those who despitefully use us. And so the Christadelphian belief regarding religious conscientious objection is very different from the beliefs of many pacifist groups. There may be a time when we are called to fight again. And because it is God that asks us to do that, we will obey based on our conscience, which comes from God. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, rather. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. And here Paul is writing to these same brothers and sisters. It's his second letter. He says, now this is our boast. And he speaks about his conscience. He says, our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you 
in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. Our conscience is based on the holiness and sincerity that are from God. And the reason we bring this up is because we need to make sure that we don't approach our brothers and sisters and ask them to do things to appease our thinking when it's contrary to the direct teaching of Scripture. So think about 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Think about Romans chapter 14. The things that are discussed here are not contrary to any direct teaching of Scripture. Paul is talking about things such as esteeming one day greater than another, holy days. He's he's teaching about things such as eating meat that's been offered to idols. But if if I, as a weaker brother, came to you and asked you to do something that was in direct contradiction to Bible teaching, it would be wrong for you to defer to my conscience in that case. Because my conscience wouldn't have been based on Bible teaching. So we see this time and time again in the Scriptures. We talked this morning about the Apostle Paul combating the teaching of the Judaizers. Turn with me to Galatians. We have freedom in Christ, don't we, brothers and sisters? And yet, we have to be careful with how we apply that freedom. There are times when we need to withdraw, withhold our freedom in Christ. We need to tone it down for the sake of the weaker brother. But there are other times, as we see here in Galatians, where that's not the case. Galatians chapter 2, verse 4. Paul's writing about those who came and spoke the Judaizer false teaching. And he says, this matter arose because some false brothers, some pseudo-Delphians, some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on us and the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. And Paul says, we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. And we can draw lessons from history because there was a time when the early church shared the same beliefs that we teach today. And yet soon, thinking such as the Trinity was introduced. And there might have been some so-called weaker brethren that said, for the sake of peace in our congregation. Please agree to this new teaching of the Trinity. And clearly, we see that example and we can clearly identify how it would be wrong for us to do so. And we see Paul doing the same thing in Galatians, where he wouldn't give in to them for a moment, he said. And bringing it back to the letter to the Corinthians, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians... Paul says that I preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews. It was a stumbling block to them. And yet, Paul continued to preach it. 
because it was the right thing to do, because it was the teaching of the Scriptures. And so we have to be careful, brothers and sisters, that when we see people that do things that upset our sensibilities and we become angry or upset, that we don't become part of the, what I refer to here as the tyranny of the offended. That we don't hold our brethren hostage over things that are not direct biblical teaching. We have to be careful that we don't do that. Because when we use verses from Corinthians or from Romans and apply it that way, we're applying it incorrectly. The lesson is that when we cause a weaker brother to be offended, it's causing that weaker brother to leave the truth. It's causing the Lord Jesus Christ to, to not do His Father's will, but to do His will. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So there are times when it is okay to preach and teach a stumbling block when what we teach and what we do is based on the revealed will of God. In summary today, we have spent time reflecting on the moral and doctrinal problems of this ecclesia. We've talked about how Paul counseled continually the ecclesia to remain united so that they could become of one mind and one thought. We looked at specific examples where a brother was acting in a way that was contrary to the teaching of Christ and was teaching the members of the congregation to do the same thing by claiming to be a brother in Christ and living a worldly life rather than a Christ-like life. And consequently, the Apostle advised the Ecclesia to withdraw from this man so that he could recognize his sin, repent of his sin, and we saw in 2 Corinthians, be restored. We talked about our associations, and we looked at how the Ecclesia in Corinth took pride in certain associations. And certainly we can look inwardly at our own lives and see how there are times when we feel a certain pride in our home ecclesia or a certain affinity towards a brother or sister. And Paul is saying that we, not, we ought not have those proudful and boastful associations, but should instead work together as fellow workers of Christ. And so here we are at Bible school fellow workers, members of the body of Christ, and we look forward to the day when he will return to establish God's kingdom, when all the earth will be filled with his knowledge and glory. It's in that day that we pray and hope.